This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we were offering five conversations from episode five, our interview with Tim Jobson of Predictive Health Intelligence, plus from The Vault, conversation 39.4 from season three, in which Louise Campbell, Ian Rowe, and I discussed some of the other frontline screening tests and systems in place in the UK in the summer of 2022, and take a look at issues surrounding the entire question of patient screening and bringing patients in. This conversation comes from our discussion last August with Louise Campbell, Ian Rowe, and me about a model that Ian and his colleague Richard Parker built in Leeds. This test, which he calls Fibrosis First, gives every high-risk patient iron and virus-serological testing plus Fib4 and, when appropriate, an available fiber scan. This conversation, which came in the latter part of the episode, addressed issues ranging from the idea that reducing costs because many patients fail to show up for a follow-up on a come-in call is, in fact, a false economic saving. It reduces costs, but it also reduces benefit more. And it appears somewhat different from what Tim Jobson described in the Predictive Health Intelligence Pilot. We also look at the importance of public policy and improving diets, and generally the idea that tests with real-time visual feedback like VCTE might lead to more return visits and greater compliance than blood tests. The challenge of cost-effective screening and triage of patients who are likely to be living with fatty liver is already pivotal and will become more so over time as drugs become available, publicity ramps up, and advanced fibrosis and cirrhosis rates continue to climb all over the world. This episode explores a solution that looks straightforward to implement in places that do not have integrated patient-level electronic health data like the U.S. And the conversations cut a big idea into bite-sized pieces So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. Well, ILFT, I presume that 100% of people you picked up with ILFT went through the pathway, did they? Yeah. And yet you found that very expensive because John Dillon, I was there in Barcelona when he was presenting. Even with people who did ILFT and had signed up for it, Roger, remind me if I'm inaccurate here, only 55% of them did not refer the patients picked up on ILFT into the services. So you do all of those tests, which are expensive, and you only refer in about 45%. That obviously has huge cost implications and would make that even more expensive by my way of thinking on your modeling than even you showed. Or is that in the model already? Ian Rowe. Uh, that's two changes in a model. That I, I have to really think about that when that <laughs> when that happens because, because you'll reduce some costs by people not attending appointments. But That's, the, not, the, that's not good though, right? No, no, it isn't good, but the diagnosis has been made. So in the model, it might, um, you know, unless you say that the diagnosis can only be made by a specialist, it probably make the model look better. But that's because the outcome is cost per diagnosis. It's not, not what happens in the long term. And I would like to think that for patients who've got treatable liver disease, coming to see a specialist is, is a value and, and will impact on their long-term outcome. ILFT is a very attractive strategy because in the UK, at least, there are guidelines that are not adhered to about testing patients for liver disease where there's abnormal tests. And it streamlines the process. It makes it easier for um, primary care doctors to get the tests that they need to get the answer to the question that they're asking. The issue is really that for many of those patients, they don't need all of those tests. And I think we can probably be a bit smarter about how they're employed. And I know that, you know, that John and his team and Dundee are iterating that algorithm constantly to try and improve its it, the way that it works. And, you know, the, this, the analysis here is a snapshot of what was published the last time it was published, but it may be that it's different underneath now. And that's one of the values of these automated strategies is that you can learn and learn quite quickly from, from information that you get through. So, Louise, do you have anything? I, I feel like I kind of monopolized the last two openings. Go ahead. I had a question. 
question because I wrote it down when I was reading the research, when I was reading the piece earlier. And, and it was like, we know that poor liver health and liver disease is now the second leading cause of working lives lost. The Easel Lancet Commission last year published that in December, I think. Healthcare, your sort of study, one in six, for example, in the UK, I believe are still are employed by the NHS. The NHS is not a fit healthcare set of personnel. 40% on the RCN statistics of nurses are overweight. We should have a signs that might do not feed the animals at the zoo. We do not feed our healthcare staff chocolates and <laughs> and our doctors and our fizzy drinks. Is it time to put these sort of pathways into workforce? Because workforce is where it, we're losing lives and we've got opportunities. Workforce health is massive and the NHS, should we be looking at home to try some of these strategies ourselves? <laughs> I know that's a way out what, what, um, thing, but I was thinking, we've got a mass population. We've all got our own health care. Should we be trying to look at our own health? Please note for anybody that has not seen either Louise or Ian or me or all of us that none of us would necessarily fit into the 40% category that Louise is talking about. So we're just making this recommendation for everybody else, right? No denial at all, because yeah. we're, we're all pretty fit. <laughs> so that's where all those apple pies catch up. Okay, Ian, go yeah, ahead. The, yeah. the other disclaimer is for any patients listening, I'll still accept chocolates as, as gifts. After after clinic, the uh, that's uh, <laughs> fundamental importance. But um, no, I mean, it's, it, in all seriousness, I'm sure that there are things that we can do to improve the health and well-being of our workforce. Whether this is the starting point or whether it's somewhere else, I don't know. But I think a large proportion of people have relatively sedentary activities in you know working life today because of you know we're all constantly tied to computer screens. I mean, here we are, the three of us, you know, looking at our screens, talking to each other. Um, but Thinking about our next chocolate fix, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I know. I just um, so, I think, so, so yes, I think, I think we, you know, we do need to do more. The issue around working years of life lost to liver disease, and the, the reality is, is the vast majority of those, well over eighty percent, are due to alcohol-related liver disease, and you know, and, and we we have to we have to remember that because in terms of addressing the real drivers of disease, that has to be number one. And you know, no doubt there is excessive and problem drinking among, among employees of all big organisations, and, and if we can, you know, help people or address that as a risk factor, I, I guess that we'll do we'll do a lot of good from a liver point of view and from a general health and society point of view too. But those would be those would be my pleas for the activity. Uh, chocolate still to clinic, please. And um and screening for you know and, and talking about and being open about alcohol and, and and I think in healthcare that's hard. But just going back, in all seriousness, health and well being departments within big firms, they offer screening, but actually the strength of what you detailed with fibrosis first actually doesn't look to stigmatise. It looks to just screen for opportunities for more common diseases and could easily be added to a healthcare screen because at the moment it's completely ignored. So we are, we're not even looking for that. Uh, so therefore opportunities like simplified pathways give us different areas that we can implement them in. And, and yes, that would require more research. It would require firms to say, yes, we're going to take an interest in liver health in our populations. But I think that's the beauty of when you look at what you're doing there by comparing different strategies of where they can also be implemented, not only just in mainstream healthcare, which is where we always target it, but there are so many areas now contributing to mainstream healthcare that can help the national 
pandemic, the alcohol problems, they've all suffered in the workforce following the pandemic for exactly the same reasons you've detailed out there with alcohol. BMI in the UK has gone up, it's gone up in, around the world, US, and it becomes a workforce issue. And we know liver health is public health. Public health is also workforce health. So maybe looking, we had a great announcement today, I think it was, and Ian, you, you might be aware, the tube advertising for sugar drinks and high-fat food has been stopped or reduced, and they reckon it's saved over a billion pounds for NHS healthcare for children's obesity. I don't know where they get those figures from or how they calculated them, but those are great announcements about advertising because I didn't see any of where we got that data from. It's just guesswork. Yeah, in many ways, that shows where we really should be working. You know, it's policy and and all of those, those other things. That's an interesting study. I've only seen the news about it. I haven't seen the study, but it looks like it's come from the Whitehall study, which was a study of principally men working in Whitehall in the 1970s and uh, consenting to long-term follow-up. Um, and they extrapolate the data from that study to the general population, and in this case of, of London. And they think that over the course of whatever it is, three or four years since they stopped the advertising on all of transport for London, uh, that they've saved several thousand cases of diabetes and uh, people not becoming obese against the trajectory that they would otherwise have had. So there's, you know, there's some uncertainties around that, but it, you know, in terms of overall benefit for the population, that's going, you know, that's it. We could do lots of testing, but just advertise less and control the environment. Well, actually, but probably both, right? Because if you advertise less, it's a little bit like putting your foot on the hose, but you still get an awful lot of water in the hose before where you put your foot on is where you're coming from. I'll tell you, I, I think this is fascinating. It makes clear that if what you want to focus on is fibrosis, that focusing directly on fibrosis is a very cost-effective way to capture, well, you said there are 450 total cases and fibrosis first gets 387, so you get, what, 85% of cases? Something like that with that algorithm. It also suggests that doing a better job of getting TE done to primary care will have both that benefit and if you miss by a little bit, then you start capturing what Louise is talking about, which is people who might not be fibrotic yet, but uh, who've got a bunch of liver fat, where if they knew about it, they might be motivated in some kind of uh, change in lifestyle or change in behavior that might last two, three, four, five years with minimal screening. That's not in the economics, I think, of what you've created here, in, but I think it's very much in the reality of care. So if you're going to look to do three things, one would be fibrosis first to get to the people who need to be an hepatologist now, um, some kind of expanded use of TE to help people who may not need to be in a in hepatologist now, but have liver and pancreas fat issues that are going to cause downstream health problems. And then, as you say, going back up to the top and, and, and putting your foot on the hose where policy is by stopping advertising and a couple of things like that. Does that all make sense? Am I getting that right? That does make sense. And in some ways, the potential value of FibroScan is, is the interaction with the practitioner. And that, that gives you the opportunity to deliver a, a brief intervention of whatever type at, at the time of the, the scan, which if it's solely blood-based, you don't you don't get because you go and, you know, in the UK, see so a phlebotomist and, and they they take your blood and, and you go away again without, there's no message that can be delivered at that point. Whereas the time of the scan, there's the potential to do that. And with the appropriate testing and evaluation, you know, you can begin to understand what the what the wider impacts of that would be. Um, and doing that in primary care makes absolute sense. All right. So we are now slightly past the bottom of the hour, which is a good time, I think, to start to wrap up. So Ian, then Louise, then me, I guess. What would you like to see come out of this study, A, in terms of further research, and B, in terms of changes in action or behavior within the healthcare system? So 
personally, I want to see this result in a in a trial of the effectiveness fibrosis first versus current standard of care, and and that that might be possible in a in a UK framework, or it might not, depending on exactly what the commissioners of research want. Um, but that's certainly the direction of of travel, and built alongside that evaluations of the impact of diagnosis on behaviour change exactly along the lines of as we've as we've talked about and i think that, that in parallel those two studies will take us quite a bit further than we are now okay so that's what we should study what do we know enough from these results to do differently is there anything but i think you can you can see from the, the results the value of deploying fibrosis testing now you know even even if it's only in restratification and that is in international guidance but not in a universal practice standard of care. So the focus should be on using those tests, whether it's FIB4 and ELF or FIB4 and FibroScan or, you know, ARFI or whatever it is, just it, it probably doesn't matter which one it is, just do one of them because we know that that will find a greater proportion of people who've got potentially treatable liver disease than if we don't do that. Louise, research you'd like to see, behaviour you'd like to see within the system? I'd like to see everything that Ian's just discussed there because I think it comes from a sound background. I'd also like to see quality of life and behaviour measurement tools within that to see whether or not and I would put a head-to-head against ELF and to get against ARFI or whatever so that you can determine which devices make people's change and whether or not it's the blood tests with the report and the results whether or not because I think that does need to be teased out we're getting more and more of that evidence there is always the oh yeah but it could be done with this or it could be done with that actually there's multiple ways of doing it is it the nurse is it it, it has to be about somebody and yeah I've got, what, 15, 16 years fibroscan experience, but I'm also a mental health nurse by background. But I'm also 38, 6 years, 37 years in hepatology. I know what to talk to patients about. A lot of patients, it's about what they need at that moment in time. That may change, but you've got to make it understandable. One of the abilities of primary care is to be able to deploy these tests into primary care and learn a language that's understandable, that somebody then can pop back to their GP and do that have that conversation or to pop into the practice nurse when you go to highly specialised units, often several hours drive from people's homes or train journeys or real difficulties, people are less engaged to then ask those questions, which means you get less of an impact or it becomes more scary. And I think the one thing we don't want to do, people, liver health is a slow changing progress for most people if we find it early enough. What we're getting now is this real problem of a lot of advanced disease that is untreatable, as Ian said, and we've said many times or cancer where we don't have an option so liver disease is racking up as a really scary disease to be diagnosed with let's get there early and make it something i want to know about my liver health because i don't want to get the scary and i think we do have to change the narrative but when we've got primary care or people who say oh liver disease too scary sent to a hepatologist that's not helping we need it liver disease is simple it is the one organ that controls the health of most of the rest of the body it's your balance and equilibrium just check it and then find it early we'll do something about it tell them to us let us talk to people but education is going to be key as part of this line and these early to re- these early strategies are really key there was another poster at easel that was really good on the fears of primary care and it was lack of education lack of knowledge of how to deploy these tests and that's where we need to target 
stuff that Ian's doing now, target with what is their weaknesses and they view as their weaknesses. And we can achieve really nice things in primary care. Most liver disease should probably be treated in primary care with the right patients going to specialist care. These strategies and these pathways that can be developed have immense potential because what will work in the UK may not work in Middle Eastern Africa or lower areas and developing worlds. And different communities will have a different role. But we've got to start with something that diagnoses liver disease earlier and cost effective. Ian's certainly shown that nicely. So I would like a trial looking at all of the benefits that we can get out of it. The brief intervention, purely the blood tests, how do we change behaviour? That might be a big protocol. We've got some good assessment techniques to be able to do that. And then in my dreams, we would not only be looking at the result on liver, but on other related metabolic conditions. Because um, I've been waiting for Louise to do this and she hasn't. But I think if I do Louise's five greatest hits from the two and a half years we've been doing this, one of them is Donna Cryer turning to Vlad you and saying, uh, if I'm dead, it doesn't matter what killed me, I'm dead. This is a really great look at liver and a really interesting discussion about the most efficient way and most effective way, which isn't necessarily the same thing, to broaden out from liver to getting motivating people with the earlier stage liver disease and other metabolic conditions to actually uh, take their health in hand and whether TE becomes part of that process or what tests become part of that process and what coaching. But Ian, I, I kind of feel like if the liver is central to everything else that goes wrong in the body, that this is, I think, a really good look at the most efficient way to look at liver and raises, I think, some really spectacular questions about the degree to which other broader screening techniques, ILFT, for example, or ILFT leading to TE, can help us help patients whose issue, who may have liver fat, but, but liver disease might not be their primary issue right now before it gets to be. And then we don't have all those people saying, gee, you could have told me 20 years ago that I could do something about this. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section on the page from which you downloaded this conversation in your podcast distributor or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. I'll be on holiday next week, but Louise and Jorn will be here to look at fatty liver disease in Australia. I'll be back the following week with them. So until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you every week here on the Surfing Nash Tsunami Podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>